Welcome to the first episode of My Life's Work podcast. I'm Nathaniel. And I'm Sarah. Together, we'll be talking to people about various stages of their career paths and learning about the past, present, and future of their work. If you haven't already listened to it, we talked for a few minutes in our first post about who we are and why we're making this podcast. You can find that in the same place you found this episode or by going to our website, mylifesworkpodcast.org. Today, we're talking to our friend and neighbor, David Stute. This is the story of a young man who left home at 18 and traveled across the world to pursue one career, but ended up on a very different path with absolutely no regrets. He spoke to us over the phone from his Capitol Hill home. David Stute's career path has never followed what we think of as a typical linear trajectory. We'll be talking about the many twists and turns that have landed David where he is today. David grew up in a small town in Germany called Detmold, and like many other children, the career path he imagined for himself as a child was shaped by his environment, in this case, a music conservatory near his town. The only college we had, um, so to speak, or that really was a conservatory, was a music conservatory. So for me growing up, the only way to get out of that town um, as a teenager and to kind of try to chart a path, the only path that I could see at that time was through music. So David decided around the age of 10 that he was going to become a professional cellist, and he spent his adolescent years devoting himself to this passion. While dedicating himself to music as a teenager, David was exposed to exciting and engaging opportunities outside of his small town in Germany. He experienced independence and opened his eyes to his ability to be successful in the larger world. When I was 15, um, I was invited to participate in, in master classes in Switzerland in a little town called Sion. And it was really for conservatory students who were, you know, 18, 19, 20, or all the way to 30. And I was just absolutely thrilled. I mean, also a little mortified because I had to take four different trains and transfer multiple times. It was like a 12-hour train ride at the time. So it took a long time and I had my cello with me. And this was before Google Maps or, you know, anything like that. So I got off the train in Sion, like after I had like been going down this valley from a mountain pass. You know, just kept on going and going and going. And I remember listening on my little disc man to Richard Strauss's um, Alpen Symphony, just sort of really like an orchestral poem about about the mountains. And and it was starting to get dark. And I was like, oh my god, how am I going to find the apartment that I have to go to? <laughs> yeah, I it, it was a really terrific experience. I mean, quite unlike anything I'd done before, because really no one spoke German, so I had to speak in English and some French and had to basically manage my life. So, But I felt extremely accomplished and I was just like, okay, like whatever it takes, I'm just going to get through this. And I think in a weird way, like even though that was only a couple of weeks, like it completely opened my horizons uh, for like what could come after, you know, that I wasn't confined to my hometown. I wasn't confined to Germany necessarily. Like I could learn other languages, you know, it took a lot of work, but it was absolutely doable. And, you know, a couple of years later, I was in the States. Inspired by a couple of summers that he spent in the United States with a high school exchange program in McLean, Virginia, David decided to return to the U.S. for college. Which, uh, for most reasonable people in their right minds, um, would have been a terrible idea because school was going to be free in Germany and not at all free in the United States. Although David wanted to study music, even at this age, he realized he had many other interests. So he chose to attend the Cleveland Institute of Music because it offered a joint degree program with the Case Western Reserve University. I took a philosophy class, introduction to philosophy. I took a, I think, a world literature class and a straight up writing class and things, you know, typical sort of intro level college classes as well. But otherwise, I was all consumed by chamber music and individual lessons and you know, meeting all my, my classmates and becoming accustomed to living in Cleveland um, in sub-zero weather. 
After a few years at college devoting the majority of his time to cello and music, the first twist in David's path developed while he was attending a music festival in Banff, Canada. It was, you know, in the in the Rocky Mountains, very scenic, wolves running by, uh, bears, you know, um, breaking into people's cabins, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, I had a lot of time to reflect. For the first time since he was 10 or 11, David decided he wanted to chart a different path. So I called up Carrie, my wife Carrie, one day after about 10 days in, in, in Canada and said, by the way, I'm not going to be a musician anymore. I'm going to go to law school. Um, <laughs> and I think that was pretty much the first time that she or anyone else I had talked with in the last probably 10 years of my life or something like that had heard anything other than I want to be a musician. So for everyone outside, it seemed to be pretty like a radical um, transformation. But for me, I've actually never looked back. While his change may have appeared sudden, Carrie's reaction shows that David had always had a wide range of interests. Carrie was definitely, I think Carrie was supportive of the choice to become a, a lawyer or to do something not music related because she saw me, you know, sitting around with books and talking about politics and talking about all kinds of other issues all the time and being able to get around the cello pretty well, but also not being so, uh, you know, single track that I could only be a good cellist and nothing else. David also reflected on the importance of his many interests on his decision to make the switch from cellist to lawyer. You know, I, I wanted to be a cellist, but I also realized that there were a lot of people who wanted to be a cellist. Um, I mean, relatively speaking, for like how many jobs there were out there. And even though I was good enough to get into the place I wanted to go, I mean, if you had just asked me, like, where were you want to go for music school? I would have said, you know, Cleveland Institute of Music to study with this professor. So, I, you know, I got there. But I was surrounded by people who were, at least in my estimation, were even more capable, who had even more innate abilities um, in that area. Whereas I, I could definitely see a path for me in music, and I think I would have enjoyed that path for the most part. I somehow had an inkling that I would ultimately, there would be a bigger market for David the lawyer, and not in a cold-hearted way, but that there would be a slightly bigger market for David the lawyer in transnational law than there would be for David the cellist. Music has continued to be a significant part of David's life, but he has never regretted his decision to ultimately become a lawyer. I'm still, I'm a huge opera lover and I'm a big classical music lover. You know, I go to a lot of concerts and I listen to classical music all the time. And so it's still a big part of my life. But this question of like, do I miss sitting on stage performing and do I miss that whole process? I would say no, because I, I also did it so exhaustively. I mean, when I was 14 or 15, I probably practiced between five and seven hours a day or something like that and was playing you know, a lot of concerts and chamber music and solo and with orchestras. And so, you know, it was just like, it was so intense. Like I felt like I really got what I could get out of that track, but that's how I felt when I was 21. Um, And I think in the end of the day, at least for me, like I've never regretted that decision because it, it really turned out to be true. Like, you know, there are three or four openings in a good year in the United States for a decent cello position. You compare that with just thousands upon thousands of great jobs in law in a given year, you know, depending on how you look, what you consider a good job. But like, it's, it's a different kind of equation. David worked for a couple of years after college to pay for law school. He moved to D.C. to intern for Sherrod Brown, who's been a senator on Capitol Hill since 2006 and a representative before that. You know, I was all excited about the neighborhood and the city and all of that and was sweating a lot because it was the summer. But in another turn of events, a couple of days before he was scheduled to start, the office called him up and told him they wouldn't be able to pay him because of a new law that was just passed. He was welcome to still come, but the job wouldn't be paid. Instead of working in D.C., David moved to New York City to work at a law firm. 
but a random Google search while at work landed him on a completely different path. For one reason or another, I thought, well, why don't I just Google uh, language skills and law or something like that on Craigslist? You know, Craigslist was really still kind of like the place to look at that time. I mean, it was, you know, didn't have the greatest reputation, but in the end of the day, that's usually where you found what you need to find. And sure enough, there was a, a posting for that kind of a job in law. I don't think it said that it was for Google, but it was interesting enough that I sent them an email. And then shortly thereafter, I had my first interview with Google in the, the New York office. And then, you know, California, I think I talked to some of the folks in, in Europe, too. David's work at Google would be centered around the removal of material that could be either personal, sensitive, or defamatory. David and his colleagues addressed the right to be forgotten question. When something appears on the internet, should the involved parties be able to request its removal? He worked with German-speaking European lawyers as well as English-speaking American ones to establish an international protocol answering this question. The public relations in Europe were terrible. Google was getting sued left and right. The consumer protection agencies were after Google. And, and, and Google in Silicon Valley had this very purist libertarian idea of free speech is free speech. It bad free speech gets countered by good free speech. So, you know, it's a self regulating kind of marketplace. No lawmakers need to interfere here in the Europeans had a very different approach. So this was, I mean, for a non-lawyer who really didn't know much about anything. Um, I mean, I knew how to, you know, decently read and write at that time, but like I, I didn't really profess to know anything about policy or law or whatever at that time, but it was a great training ground because I was just thrown into the cold water and like had to figure it out. After David's experience with Google and a couple of years to finance his studies, he attended and graduated at Michigan Law School. However, he was confronted by the challenge many lawyers face. What to do with his law degree? Maybe you become a law clerk for a federal or state judge, or you become a litigator or a transactional lawyer. You work for a company, you work for a law firm, you work for an NGO. I mean, you work for a government. Like, I mean, just all of these different options. And it's really hard to sort out. I mean, like people are in law school, I think, are just as stressed out about like figuring that out as they are about getting good grades in their classes and soaking up the material. For a summer internship, David wanted to work for the Foreign Commerce Section at the Antitrust Division at the Department of Justice. While he got the job in yet another turn of events, he wasn't able to accept it because his naturalization came through too late. So it's like there have been quite a few places in my life where I wanted to do one thing, but for one reason or another, it was absolutely foreclosed. So that was another one. Like I couldn't do that. Instead, he decided to go back to Google, this time working in Hamburg instead of San Francisco. The experience reaffirmed his desire to work in transnational legal issues. After graduation, David moved back to D.C. to clerk for an appellate judge, and since then has worked for a number of law firms in the city. In terms of the complexity of the legal issues, I'm extremely happy with what I'm doing because they're, they're really, really demanding, and I get to work on a lot of sort of, as they say in the law, issues of first impression, just things that have never come up before, and we have to argue them for the first time. I mean, it's really, really fun, especially in the transnational sort of legal arena, because you get to draw on so many sources. It's not just U.S. case law or U.S. statutes, but like articles written by academics, foreign law, international law, you know, experts who opine on legal issues for you to buttress your case. I mean, you just have this like hodgepodge of like arguments that you can put together. It's really it's a, cr a very creative process, actually, even though the underlying structure is hopefully one of logic <laughs> if you do a good job. After talking with David about the arc of his career path, we came back together a couple weeks later to ask David to reflect on his experience. As cello students ourselves, we were particularly interested in how fully he had dedicated himself to music, and then, without regret, how he transitioned to dedicating himself to other pursuits.
When David looked back over his career path, he identified a few central themes. I like challenges, um, and I like gaining knowledge about subjects that I know relatively little about. So I really enjoy sort of the exploratory phase of like having a new interest or having a slightly different vantage point and then seeing where that can take me. And obviously these are long drawn out processes, right? I mean, it's not like I get into something one month, gain a little bit of knowledge and then cast it aside. But like, for instance, with music, you know, when I was maybe 10 or 11 and I really thought, oh, this is so much fun. I mean, there was so much to explore. I mean, between like the repertoire and the people you could meet and just the sort of physical aspect of trying to master whatever you were trying to achieve on the instrument that took years and years and years to, to develop. In, in a lot of ways, then when I, you know, was when I started philosophy and later law in college, um, I feel like it was in, in many ways a repeat of that same process, just that the challenges were different and that obviously the knowledge you were trying to acquire was like different subject matter knowledge. But but in terms of the mechanics of the process, it was very similar. And I think it's really this like expanding what you know and pushing yourself to do whatever you're doing very well is like the two things that kind of keep me engaged. I think it's wrong to think that you just become an expert in a given area when you're 40 or 35 or 45 or whatever the age is. And if you stop learning, um, or stop wanting to learn, you're probably in big trouble because as human beings, we're not wired for, for stagnation in that sense. While devoting oneself to a particular passion can lead to enormous personal growth and access to a thriving community, it also comes with its own challenges. Spend a lot of time doing things that I really enjoyed doing and that I enjoyed becoming better at. And, and you know, I met a lot of people I otherwise wouldn't have met. And yeah, maybe I spent too much time with people who were not exactly my age early, early on, right? Uh, so maybe, yeah, maybe I missed out on some of that just carefree period of my life that I could have had. You know, the sad aspect of that is that I really, I didn't have that many friends in school in, in Germany, like when I was in, in high school. And I don't know what was first, but either I was a little ostracized because I wanted to be a musician or I became a musician because I was a little ostracized. I, I can't put my finger on like what came first anymore, but there was definitely that and, and music allowed me both to like find a new area that I could pursue, but also just other people to meet who didn't come from my community and who had a, had a different outlook on life. Yeah, it was a little bit of a running away. And at the same time, I don't necessarily regret it because I do think that, that I still had very, very good friends. So I didn't feel lonely during those years, but I definitely didn't get my traditional circle of people like friends from school or whatever. Playing cello gave David both an engaging passion and a fulfilling community. His experiences as a musician shaped his adolescence and the adult he became. However, by the time he was ready to think about committing to a lifelong career, he was open to exploring new adventures. We asked David whether he could ever imagine making another significant transition in his career. So I think there's a 95% chance that I will not make such a dramatic change again because I really, really like the practice of law. Um, mm. and the um, theoretical nature of the work. Um, I mean, like just, it's such a big area and there's, there's so many different things, as I hinted earlier, that you can do. It's hard for me to imagine casting all of that aside and just saying, I'm going to start completely fresh with something else. Nonetheless, David keeps the spirit of openness alive, even if it's just in the form of a pipe dream. Maybe one day uh, <laughs> when I'm, you know, another 10, 15 years older than I am right now, 
maybe I just want to do something that's much more sort of physical than what I do now, such as uh, building houses or something like that. But I really think that that's a pipe dream. Like that's, and it's not the sort of thing where like I think about it, then I abandon that thought and I, it pains me to abandon the thought. Like not at all. Like it's just kind of, you know, that, that's the one frustrating thing about practicing law and many other white collar jobs is that, you know, you spend all your days doing something and at the end of the day, you still can't look at what you did. And it's sometimes a little, you know. That makes sense. Maybe I need to start knitting or something. Yeah. <laughs> One part of David's path that particularly interested me was how he used his teenage years to completely apply himself to music. Because we spend all day learning in school, it's easy to fill our days with assigned work instead of devoting ourselves to interests and activities that we find meaningful. I imagine the importance of engaging oneself fully in one's passions will remain true when we transition from school to work. I really appreciated hearing how David devoted himself to his passion. Music excited him in his teenage years, so he worked on that constantly. When he got through college, he realized that maybe that wasn't the right path, and he found something else that excited him. I love the idea of devoting myself to what excites me in the moment. Passions can be fluid, and what I choose to devote myself to this year and the next may not be the same as years from now. When I unexpectedly ended up in the hospital this past year for a couple months, and much was uncertain about my future, I remember taking great comfort in knowing that in the months before, I hadn't been waiting to engage myself in my passions. I had been inspiring new internships, reading new books, doing the things that were hard for me, and trying to figure out what made for a fulfilling week. I don't want to ever feel like I'm waiting to be engaged. I don't have to wait for a school project to come along that happens to inspire me. I can commit to seeking that inspiration myself. Hearing David's story cemented this idea for me. There's nothing lost in dedicating oneself fully to something, even if it's not what you're going to pursue your whole life. Absolutely, and David's idea of unrestrained dedication has challenged my understanding of creative exploration. I know that at my age, when we're known to develop our skills and personality the fastest, it's crucial to diversify interests. And I've been told, actually, that I shouldn't just focus all my energy on one thing. People have said that doing that could be detrimental for my career, that I need to learn how to write and to socialize and find a million hobbies that spark my imagination and curiosity and studiousness equally. But David's story has, I think, shown me that you don't have to spread yourself too thin either, and there doesn't have to be any sort of pressure to get things right the very first time. You can have a suffet of hobbies, or just choose a few, but there exists no perfect formula for anyone. David has been, and of course continues to be, very successful, yet he didn't start law from a very young age. His decision to change career paths came in college, and while it could have flipped everything upside down for him, it didn't. David's grit, his ability to see the best and the most bewildering situations, it's inspirational. He'd traveled 4,000 some miles to the States, counting on studying music and making it his career. His transfer to law wasn't a best case scenario either. In fact, he had to take a couple years to work to fund law school. And his first job in DC, he showed up and they told him they couldn't pay him anymore. David's story of resilience and incredible success, both through his career and family, tells me a story of hope. It doesn't matter how many hobbies you have or the practicality of your interests. You just need to be able to pick yourself up after the inevitable setbacks and put yourself back together for the next phase in your life's work. I like this idea of resiliency in David's story. With COVID, we're faced with many challenges and even fears about the future. However, the shutdowns caused by COVID have changed all our routines and have opened time in the day to pursue what interests us. We need to take inspiration from the fear and uncertainty and embrace our passions to shape our own path forward. We want to hear from you. What's your COVID project? How are you taking advantage of your teenage years or how did you take advantage of your teenage years? Reach out to us at mylifesworkpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find more information about us in this podcast on our website, mylifesworkpodcast.org. 
we've already got another interview lined up, so keep an eye on wherever you found this episode for more. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you have a nice day. Thank you.